that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the city on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca. On the program, I speak with anti-poverty activist and author Jean Swanson about the cost of poverty. In the second part of the program, we'll hear highlights from the Vancouver Renters Union panel, The Future of Social Housing, From Little Mountain to Heather Place, held uh, this past Saturday, June 16th. That and more on the show. This is the city. Stay with us. Thanks for being with us on the program. And uh, first, I have Jean Swanson live um, on the line. And Jean is a longtime anti-poverty act- activist in Vancouver um, with Raise the Rates, the Carnegie Community Action Project, and author of Poor Bashing, The Politics of Exclusion, um, published over 10 years ago now. And Jean, thank you so much for being with me today. You're welcome. So I'm talking to you specifically about an upcoming event um, uh, that is uh, planned um, for June 26th. Can you tell me about this event? Yeah, it's going to be a for a panel discussion on the costs of poverty, and it will be unique because we'll have we'll have a huge panel. I'm hoping it won't be talking heads, but just kind of a discussion about the human costs of poverty and also the monetary costs. So we can talk about how. Poverty is costing us in suffering, lost opportunities, bad health, crime, and wasted money. And we've got a great panel of people who are on welfare and disability and also academics who have done the costing uh, and have actual numbers about how much poverty costs us as a province. Who are some of the panelists and um, what kind of discussion you mentioned Colleen Boudreau, who's a young Chinese-side resident on disability. Ted Bruce, who's with the Poverty Reduction Coalition. Sharon Gill. Uh, Carol Martin from the Downtown Eastside Women's Center. Adrian Montani from First Call. Seth Klein from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. Harold Lavender and Fraser Stewart, who are both Downtown Eastside residents. Colleen McGuire, who's from the Dietitians of BC. Iglika Ivanova, did I say her? She's from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, too. Mm-hmm. 
So lots of different perspectives. Yeah. For for you, um, you've been addressing poverty and and involved in these struggles um, for some time now. Um, where are we at in in the province and locally in Vancouver? Um, where where are we at with poverty and are we are we dealing with it or are we regressing? Um, I'm 69 years old and I've been at this since I was um, 33. 33, is that right? Something like that. And uh, we're getting worse. There, poverty is getting way worse now than it was when I first started out because um, the old neoconservative agenda has really taken hold. Um, in 1980, the purchasing power of welfare was about $300 a month more than it is now. So now welfare for a single person is 610 And in order for it to have the same purchasing power that it had in 1980, it would be about 970 just hmm. for one example. Wow. Um I want to ask you um, about... Also, uh, hey, I could give you another example. <laughs> Social housing. Yeah. In the 80s, there were an average of 767 units of social housing built in Vancouver per year. And now it's way less than that. Way, way less. It's more like 100 units per year. 200 right. units per year. And making the connection to housing um, and addressing poverty, um, for you, um, what is that connection and and how is uh, dealing with housing and affordable housing and social housing and providing and actually building those units that we need, how how does that directly address poverty? Well, um, poverty, uh, if you're poor, housing takes up a huge percentage of your income whether you're working poor or on welfare. Um, if you're on welfare, about the only way you can survive is if you're in social housing. Um, but there's a waiting list of um, twelve to 14000 for plain old regular social housing and about 1000 for social housing. So, um, you know, you can't live, according to the dietitians even, you can't, even just pay average rent and eat a nutritious diet, even if you don't spend money on anything else if you're on welfare. Right. You can't even buy a tube of toothpaste. You'll still be in the hole if all you do is pay your rent and buy nutritious food. Right. Why Why is economic, why is justice, um, why do we need economic justice and social justice um, and not just charity? Well, um, there's six things like food and shelter and health care and education that are fundamental human rights, as outlined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the uh, Economic, Social, and Cultural Covenant it's, that Canada signed in 1976. And um, I don't think that you can rely on charity for, to meet basic human rights, Um there's, you know, a lot of people give to charity and they're well-meaning, but the, the problems with charity are it's never enough. It creates a, a perception that enough is being done when it isn't. 
people have to grovel to get charity. They feel really bad. People feel humiliated having to get charity. Um, that quality of charitable stuff isn't that high. Like the quality of food that you get at food banks isn't very high. Um, things like that. I think um, because people can give to, to charity, they think that our system is working okay when it isn't. It's, all, it's actually producing a huge amount of inequality. Right. In in your book, Poor Bashing, which was, um, was now published over 10 years ago, um, you talk about how how it disguises who really has power in society. And I want to ask you if we're if we're at this point, if we're looking at that power structure and if we're doing that in a productive way, we can talk about the Occupy movement and the fact that perhaps income inequality and economic injustice has been um, in the news uh, recently more than maybe in, in previous years. Um, but is that discussion where it needs to be and, and how do we further that? Well, I think the Occupy movement did make it make the corporate media have to look at inequality. I think that was its main good point. Uh, but we haven't gone far enough because we inequality is still getting worse. So, um, yeah, we need massive change. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to get it when uh, corporations and corporate power controls so much of the means of communication and so much of how people think. In, in 1988, you uh, ran as the Coalition of Progressive Electors mayoral candidate, and I want to ask you, um, from your position, um, what's your take on Vision Vancouver and the trajectory of this city? Okay, well, I'm not really into that type of politics right now. I'm I'm trying to be more movement building mm-hmm. and trying to do things that get all parties to adopt what we're in for, like a poverty, like raising welfare rates, raising minimum wage, building social housing, and the things. Um, trying to put pressure equally on all parties. Um, I think um, the main problem with vision that we've seen from the downtown east side point of view is that they're understating their problems of homelessness and lack of social housing and they're um, they seem to have a pro-gentrification agenda they're not doing it much to slow down gentrification and it's having a really bad effect on low-income people mm-hmm. um, I guess in the long term do you see um, do you see the current politics um, locally as, as something that we can move forward with or do we need to see pretty radical s- changes at the, at that local level? And what well, can ultimately the city do? We need to do? see the changes at all levels of government. Um, <clears throat> city, province, federal. I mean, Canada is the only country in the state that doesn't have a national housing program. You know, we desperately need a national housing program with the Fed and the province contributing and the city can contribute the land. Um, and we need people from all, anybody that's concerned about homelessness, you know, if even we need corporations actually calling for a national housing program. Um, people can 
make money off it. It's just that uh, we desperately need some more housing to be built that's outside of the market that low-income people can afford. And if we don't get it, it's actually, it's actually more expensive to not build it than it is to build it. There have been a bunch of studies that show that. Mm-hmm. So we desperately need okay. more social housing, and it'll it'll be a bit of competition for the market housing and help bring rents down a bit, even for people who are in the market housing. Do you think there's a likelihood that uh, the the pressure of finding adequate and affordable housing across the city, not just um, for um, the poor and, and low income um, within the city, for students, for um, racialized peoples, for Aboriginal people, of, um, of all people facing a real uphill battle to find adequate housing across the city. Um, do you think as things get increasingly more difficult and we see greater inequality, um, the struggles that you've been fighting and, and many in the downtown east side, um, there'll be there'll be solidarities that can be built across the board? And are we seeing that at this point? I don't think we're seeing it now. Um, it may be we can build some solidarity. I am actually right now trying to put together a social coalition. Um, and I'm meeting with some positive response. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll, we'll just have to see, I guess. I mean, the fear is that all the people who would need social housing would be pushed completely out of the city mm-hmm. at the current rate. Right. Any uh, final thoughts um, or uh, anything else about the event upcoming um, on the 26th that you want to mention? Everybody's welcome to come. It's at the Grandview Calvary Baptist Church at, on First and Salisbury, which is near Commercial at 7. Okay. And we'll have coffee, and it should be interesting, and hope people can make it. Okay. Well, Jean, give, give people more ammo, ammunition to fight poverty. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, thank you for everything that you do. Okay, thank you. Take care now. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. And that was Jean Swanson. She's chair of Raise the Rates, um, and an organizer with the Carnegie Community Action Project um, that works in the downtown east side and uh, talking about um, an event coming up on uh, Tuesday, June 26th from 7 to 9 p.m., The Cost of Poverty, a panel discussion um, at Grandview Calvary Baptist Church um, at 1803 East 1st Avenue, uh, just off Commercial Drive, and uh, an opportunity to find out how much poverty is costing B.C., and uh, you can find more on that event at raisetherates.org. And we're going to take a quick break, um, but in the next uh, second part of the show, um, we've got uh, some extensive coverage um, featuring the Vancouver Renters Union panel um, on uh, the future of social housing. So tying in directly what Jean was talking about, the need for social housing and where we need to take this fight um, at the local level, but again, at all scales. Um, and uh, that, that discussion, uh, some of the, I'm going to feature some of those speakers um, shortly. So stay, stay tuned. Um, this is CITR 101.9 FM, the city at citr.ca streaming, and uh, the website, thecityfm.org, if you want to learn more about the show. And we're also syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, cjsf.ca.
can ride with us, man, but you're riding in the back because I got a shot. Yeah, 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 The Rio Theatre is your independent East Vancouver theatre, playing first-run feature films, independent film screenings, as well as live events. Every Friday night, there are featured midnight cult classics on the big screen, and no one can beat the Rio for their cheap date Tuesdays. There's no better place to be than the Rio for classic movies like The Big Lebowski, The Room, Carrie, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Dazed and Confused, and Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill. Special events at the Rio this month include June 15th, Bring your dancing shoes for Good with Grapes with Young Pacific and Darival. Tickets are $10. Doors open at 10 p.m. Starting June 21st to July 1st, come watch the Euro 2012 finals starting at 11 a.m. And on the last Wednesday of the month, come get your nerd on with the hit show Dungeons & Dragons. Join Vancouver's best comedians as they quest for glory and honor in this live improvised performance. For more information on all this and more, check out theriotheater.ca. You're all shook up, aren't you, baby? Anta Cecilia Point, Talitsinat Plachvo Musqueam. My name is Cecilia Point. I'm a member of the Musqueam First Nation. Uh, the Musqueam Nation is holding vigil at the corner of Southwest Marine and Hudson, and we're protecting our ancestral burial grounds, which have been approved for development. So if you'd like to come down and join us, we will be here 24 hours a day until we receive justice. You can bring food or coffee or bring flowers for our ancestors. If you'd like to donate food, call 604-649-5556. And otherwise, just come down and and spend some time with us and hold up the sign and show your support. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Haichika. And before the break, you heard Hot Panda from their recent release, Go Outside, and the track was One in the Head, One in the Chest. And uh, now we turn to uh, coverage um, and some feature, uh, feature um, featuring uh, the panel from this past weekend um, on June 16th, um, f- The Future of Social Housing in Vancouver, From Little Mountain to Heather Place. And this was organized by the Vancouver Renters Union and uh, featuring a number of different speakers. And I'm only going to have an opportunity to uh, bring you um, some of the comments made by some of the panelists. Um, But uh, it was facilitated by Barry Grove from Community Advocates for Little Mountain. And um, we're going to get right into it. Um, And... uh, Again, I'll be posting the full um, uninterrupted and um, the full panel discussion in its entirety at thecityfm.org, um, and you can find that um, very shortly after, uh, after the program. Um, so, again, check that out, and uh, if you want to learn more about the Vancouver Renters Union, they're doing some really incredible work um, to build solidarity across the city for people uh, renting and really facing a number of hardships or facing rent evictions in the city um, and a number of different challenges um, to accessible, affordable, and adequate living in the city. So, Van Renters Union org for more information. So this is Barry uh, giving an introduction to the panel discussion, and he lays out the context of uh, what's going on with Heather Place. Metro Vancouver uh, is the owner of Heather Place, and uh, they've proudly announced that uh, uh, there's going to be an increase in the number of uh, places, affordable places at Heather Place. Um, uh, this is in the context of the fact that they're only guaranteeing 
that a third of the people who live there will be able to move back at the same rate. The other two-thirds don't have official subsidies, and most recently uh, what uh, Metro Vancouver Housing has said is, well, we don't, just don't know what, what rent we would charge you if you wanted to move back. Uh, it could be market rent. So in fact, there's a threat there of losing two-thirds of uh, the, the current um, affordable housing in, in that uh, area, and then they might add five more units. So it's, uh, it's really uh, uh, a rather extreme charade front. We're here today uh, to uh, unpack the unfolding situation at Heather Place and at future Heather Places. Uh, to draw lessons from the recent past, including the destruction of Little Mountain and the false promises at the Olympic Village. To provide an overview of how old lines of public funding are disappearing. Um, which were won by past generations and how new avenues need to be found and to look to mo uh, other models in other parts of the world uh, for, uh, that have robust public housing programs. Our next speaker is Maria Wolstam. Maria is an organizer with the Vancouver Renters Union. Uh, she works as a social worker in the downtown east side and sees the effects of the housing crisis on a daily basis. Yeah. Hi everybody, can you hear me? Yeah. So I'm hoping to put Heather Place into a larger context of what's happening with social housing funding in Canada and the specific what's happening to operating agreements. Um, fundamental to understanding the social housing crisis, which is also the same as the general housing crisis, is to see that what's happening in Heather Place, what happened in Little Mountain, what's happening in Lyons Manor, they're not isolated, isolated events, nor are they haphazard. The red thread that connects these geographically spread out sites of crisis together is not the cause uh, of natural developments of the events, rather the result of a long-term strategy to privatize the public sector, to apply the model of the private cooperation along human activities, in this case, the non-profit housing sector. Um, the mass expiration of social housing agreements has already begun and will be unfolding further during the next de decade. Uh, this will be compounding on the largest already dire housing crisis and nothing can be more alarming concerning for the underhoused, the precariously housed, the low income and working class population of British Columbia. Yet, this has been kept in the dark. It is underreported and it's not acknowledged by mainstream press or by the politicians. Um, and in a recent report by BC No Profit Housing Association, the expiring agreements were framed as an emerging opportunity. And this is also how it's viewed by neoliberal politicians. They see this as an innovative challenge for privatizing the public sector. They see here a window of opportunity for disaster capitalism. Which is, of course, when a government, regime, or corporation takes advantage of a shock, a disaster to the economy, um, to introduce liberal market reforms, which would not otherwise have been introduced. So just to give you a background of what operating agreements are. An operating agreement forms a legal contract between the government and the provider, the housing provider in this case. And they define the parameters for the housing program under which the government is offering sub subsidies or other forms of assistance. They, they take various forms, but the, the, the majority of the operating contracts uh, and the subsidies are linked to the mortgage. 
that is, the operating agreement is set to expire at the same time that the mortgage is amortized. And the thought behind this is that once the mortgage is paid off, the housing creator should be able to be self-reliant and function without government funding. However, recent research as well as recent experiences in the city convey a very different picture. So just to give you a, an idea of the scale and the scope of this uh, problem, in BC we have 90% of the 41,000 non-profit housing units are subsidized through ongoing operating agreements with set expiry dates. 80% of these operating agreements are set to expire within the next 25 years, and it has already begun. And I just got actually some data on, uh, on the numbers in Vancouver. In Vancouver, this will have paid out 25,000 expired operating agreements by the year 2030. Um, so this has already begun today. Um, nationwide, we're talking about 99% of all operating agreements with non-profit housing providers will have expired by 2033. This amounts to 3.5 billion of reduced government expenditure annually. This is an aggregate withdrawal of approximately 30 billion governmental funds. We're witnessing the unprecedented withdrawal of public housing funds and a massive disappearance of public housing funds, uh, public housing, unless nothing is done about it. Um, so the effects of these uh, uh, expiring operating agreements will depend upon the income and the rental mix of the building. Based on a recent report that looked at um, costs over revenues and whether non-profit housing providers had a, uh, a capital plan to pay for future repairs, uh, the study reached the conclusion that 36% of BC's non-profit stock are in a positive financial state and they'll be able to be viable after the expiry. However, a quarter of the providers are also deemed to be in a vulnerable position and they will most likely not make it unless they get extended funding. The remaining 40% are in an indeterminate state and their survival will depend upon whether they introduce market initiatives for profit venture or austerity measures. The providers who are found least likely to be viable post-funding today house the highest proportion of low-income and precarious households. A 2006 study, um, was case studies, found that the Urban Native Housing Project in Northeast in Vancouver 450 units is among the one of the portfolios which is least likely to be viable after expiring and will not make it unless they get extended funding. The, 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 the same report reaches the conclusion that, that many low-income urban original households will be displaced and potentially made homeless if nothing is done about it. And I think Patrick is also going to address this later. Um, this dire forecast, the author extends for the majority of urban native housing, as well as the majority of public housing projects in Canada. And this is because most of them are 100% or at least a very high proportion of rent geared to income tenants, as well as low income tenants, which means it's a high subsidy. Um, so this is a result of a decade of aggressive austerity measures by the federal liberal starting in the 1990s. We're now at a historic low point in the federal and provincial affordable and social housing spending. And despite this enormous reduction in government expenditure that these expiring agreements are going to entail, there are presently no federal or provincial plans to initiate new or extend existing operating agreements. 
The forecasted federal funding for nonprofits in BC year 2030 is zero. So this has been part of a long-term strategy to privatize the public sector and the nonprofit housing sector. One of the strategies used to do this has been to devolve responsibility, to pass the buck down without anyone taking responsibility for it. We have seen the housing responsibility for housing being passed down from the federal to the provincial level starting in 1993, but this was finalized in the official transfer in 2006. However, what happens with expired operation agreements is that the responsibility is downloaded even further. With no plans to extend the subsidies, it is now up to the non-profit housing providers themselves to make it post-expiring. And their survival will hinge upon whether they take market forms or austerity measures to improve their revenues. So what's happened here is the government has been able to shift responsibility while at the same time retaining indirect power through selective and competitive project funding. There's been a shift from core long-term funding towards time-limited project-based funding. Uh, and I heard this only yesterday, an example of this is the short-term operating agreement that the social housing in Woodward's got, which is apparently only 10 years, and which will have to be renewed after 10 years. And who knows what will happen then. So what's happening is that non-profits are forced to compete for the scarce funding or the contracts uh, that are available, where one non-profit's gain is another's loss. This means that non-profit funding and the provision increasingly starts in operating like the market. Efficiency and willingness to operate with those in power is rewarded with market power. This has resulted in the growth of large-scale operators, which we can see very visibly in the Dalton East Side today. This, in combination with the competitive funding mechanisms, has made it more likely that the providers will neglect accountability towards tenants as accountability towards stakeholders is prioritized. Um, Non-profit housing operators are operating now like private corporations, whether by necessity, by force, willingly or not. One minute, please. This means that we have to abandon the idea once and for all that they represent the greater good of the tenants. And we need to organize tenants. And we need to strive for resident-controlled public housing. In the most extreme cases, responsibility has developed, been devolved onto the tenants themselves. Tenants organizing and opposing what's happening are being blamed for causing problems. An example of this in, in reference to Heather Place is Jeff Max recently told the tenants of Heather Place to take some ownership and direction over the future, despite the fact that Heather Place's housing is slated for demolition. They recommended strategies for ensuring future viability by BC Housing, CMHC, and the Nonprofit Housing Associations are nothing less than disaster capitalist measures. They amount to nothing less than privatization strategies. And we're witnessing the effects of these measures being used across the city. Nathan mentioned a few of these in regard to Heather Place, and they've resulted in evictions, renovations, and displacement. Tom, please. Thank you. Ultimately, policy recommendations and the practice approach have been focused on finding ways and forcing ways of non-profits sustaining themselves outside of an ongoing government structure, regardless of its effects on tenants. And although viability origins from the Latin word meaning capability of life, in the context of expiring operating agreements, its meaning could not be further from its origins. 
In the context of neoliberal policymaking, economic viability violently neglects the viability, the capability of life of social housing tenants and renters in general. Sorry for having such a depressing speak, and I think the others are going to speak about what's happening and how people are organizing against this. Thanks very much. between market processes and state policy in producing and reinforcing urban social inequalities. Among numerous other books and publications, Alvin is the co-author of a textbook on gentrification called, oddly enough, Gentrification, and more recently, The Gentrification Reader, which was published in 2010. Alvin? Thank you so much. This is a wonderful panel, and I'm really privileged to be here with these distinguished uh, scholars, advocates, analysts. Uh, we're building something, all of us here. We're building a recognition and a constituency and a movement, and it is nonprofit. It is the unpaid labor of all of us sitting around here talking about something. This makes people mad. It makes our adversaries mad because it's not priced. It can't be sold off. It can't be commodified. Gentrification is the class transformation of urban space. Now, for a long time now, uh, gentrification has kind of become this uh, flashpoint of development because people have focused on the local aspects of it. So they've emphasized the space aspect, looking at a particular street or a block, saying, is this gentrification? Is it not? Oh, it's an old, unused parcel, and so it was not. 
directly displacing anybody to put luxury condos there. That's very deceptive. Gentrification is the class transformation of urban space. Let's not forget the class part of what's going on here. We are in an urban world, and it is an, a world of urbanization, and it's also a world of class struggle. We have to emphasize the class part of transformation, because that's what's happening is social housing is being gentrified, because everything else is being gentrified. So when Bob Rennie says that uh, there's nowhere to grow in Vancouver except East. The smart money gets in early. Be bold or move to suburbia. He's being 100% accurate. He's got the theory down pat. He understands this fully, and a lot of people in Vancouver do. What's happening is that the last remaining parts of the public constructions of the 20th century are being commodified and sold off. All housing is social housing. Renters understand that. Homeowners simply need to learn that. Okay. Social housing is under attack. We are having to relitigate every achievement from the progressive era through the 1930s, through the disaster of World War II. Child labor, the eight-hour day, the concept of the weekend, that's all been destroyed by giving people blackberries and stuff like that so they can be on call 24-7. We're having to relitigate all of those achievements. Now, for my entire life, uh, we've been told that the 60s was over and done with and nothing like that is ever going to happen. And we have had these constant attacks on the welfare state. Every component of the welfare state has been unreceived through privatization. Now, there's good news and there's bad news here, okay? Uh, the good news is that once you chew through all of those historical achievements, once you sell off everything, once you commodify everything, there's a lot of revolutionary possibilities on the other side of that. Do you really want to go back to the 19th century? The next time you're talking to developers, once you're talking to politicians who've been bought up by, by developers, once you are essentially talking to the 1%, Ask them, do you really want to go back to the 19th century? Do you remember any history? Hmm. Now the bad news, of course, is there's going to be a lot of pain and suffering to get there. Okay? We don't know exactly how long this is going to take. Every part of the system we are defending here, in terms of social housing, came out of crisis. It came out of a broad recognition that you can't blame the individual for everybody, uh, for everything. You can't privatize everything and say, this is mine, I achieved it, uh, it belongs only to me. What we have is a social creation. Urbanization creates value. Ownership rights then partition it and say, you can have it and you can't have it. Now, the biggest divide is between owners and renters. Of course, owners have this really strange concept uh, they owe a certain amount to the bank usually, okay? And uh, then there is the market value of the house, okay? And then the difference, they do a little subtraction. And, and what do we call that? We call that equity. There's nothing equitable about it. <laughs> nothing at all. They get it, okay, as an owner. And renters don't get it. Renters get this constant sense that you're not personal responsible. You're not, 
You're not an owner. You don't have home equity. You can't get a home equity line of credit. Now, when the markets crashed in 2008, we had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go up to every rich homeowner that you could find and you could talk to them and you could say, hmm, your house is worth $100,000 less this year than it was last year. What did you do wrong? Now, obviously, if you're going to sit back and, and say when your home equity increases every year, you're going to say, hmm, hmm, I did that. Yeah, yeah, I earned that. No, you didn't. That was built by urbanization. You can't have a city by yourself. A city is inescapably a social product. So what we have here is this opportunity to talk to middle-class homeowners and to remind them that they are renters. Now, they, they know this in their bones, but they can't afford to admit it because neoliberalization has replaced a social contract with the idea that that home equity, that individual home equity, is going to help them retire, put their kids through school, deal with unexpected expenses. Basically, everything the welfare state has abandoned, homeowners are saying, hmm, I'm really glad that I bought what I did in this insanely expensive housing market. So what's happened is people have come to use home ownership as a way of dealing with the contradictions of neoliberalism that many of us here have pointed out. There is an extraordinary opportunity. We don't know exactly when we're going to get this chance to really have this conversation because the market crash didn't hit Canada the same way it did the United States, and it didn't hit Canada the same way it is flowing across Europe. But we know it's coming here. We don't know exactly when, we don't know exactly what the details are, we just need to be ready. And we need to be ready to ask in a very friendly way to these middle class people who are engaged in what is called dream up, blame down. Which is, you dream you're going to hit the lottery and you're not going to have to worry about it. You're going to hit the real estate lottery and everything's going to be fine. And when you fail, then you blame down. You blame the people who are on welfare. You blame poor people who you think are getting all your tax benefits, and they're not, of course. Most taxes are going for middle class and wealthy welfare. So we have this opportunity to remind people that everyone lives in social housing. And as soon as we recognize that, we simply need to rebuild this understanding of access to housing, the use value of housing, not the emphasis on constant exchange value and constant speculation, con constant attempts to take the use values of cities, of urbanization, the fundamental community, and to put a price on everything. Not everything can be priced. Neoliberalism is financed by poaching the social investments in the public sector and in those parts of life that are comparatively less commodified. Health, childhood, education, community, even old age and death. All of those are now the frontier of attempts to commodify. Housing is this one that gives us an opportunity to get a lot of people on our side and just to remind them, everyone lives in social housing, even those people who think they own because they're just renting
Lincoln Capital. Capital is the landlord when they have a mortgage payment every month. And they know this. We just need to remind them. Thanks. <laughs> amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. 
despite the fact that 8 in 10 Canadians are against warrantless and costly online spying, the government remains stubborn, set to cement this scheme into law. With their huge PR budget, they've unleashed a reckless and irresponsible campaign that suggests warrantless collection of our private data is on par with a phone book. We can't let them trick Canadians. Go to www.openmedia.ca now to find out what you can do to get involved and stop this smoke and mirrors campaign the government has started. And you've been hearing features from the Vancouver Renters Union, Vancouver Renter Union's um, panel discussion, the future of social housing in Vancouver, from Little Mountain to Heather Place. And you heard from a number of speakers. And we're going to end with uh, one last speaker, uh, Richard Marquez, who is um, an organizer here in Vancouver, originally from the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, here's what he has to say. And again, um, I'm going to be posting this entire uh, panel discussion in its entirety at the cityfm.org, and you can listen to that at your leisure. Um, again, this is the city on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. And uh, this is Richard. Our last uh, panel uh, presentation is from Richard Marquez. Richard is a third-generation native San Franciscan who engages in alliance and social movement building from a Mexican-American perspective. He was a member in the formation of the Mission Anti-Displacement Coalition and active with urban anti-poverty fights in both SRO and public housing in San Francisco. Currently, Richard is a social worker in the downtown east side, working with people living with HIV-AIDS who constantly deal with housing and poverty. As a volunteer for the Carnegie Community Action Project and the Downtown East Side Neighborhood Council, Richard was a key organizer with the tenants of the Palace and Wonder Hotels. Richard?
new headquarters is on Market Street, and it's right next to the Tenderloin, which has about 250 hotels, SRO hotels. Um, the biggest gentrifier in that neighborhood is the Academy of Art College. And they're buying up whole blocks of apartment buildings and residential hotels. Um, does that sound familiar? I think some of that's happening here too as well. So how do you sum up decades of tenant grassroots organizing? I think I have some that's left. I guess you don't do it, so I'll keep rushing through this as fast as I can. Um, I grew up in the political rights movement in the US. And if you know anything about San Francisco, I grew up in a working class neighborhood called Excelsior. Uh, Spike Lee actually, in his film, Sucker Free City, an HBO special, looks at gentrification in San Francisco and what happened in the year, in the years, in the late 1990s and the years, in, in the year 2000. My neighborhood is known for producing um, Jerry Garcia, the Grateful Dead Band, and also the killer of Harvey Milk, Dan White, my neighborhood, youth SF cop. So, the history of organizing in public, in public housing and single democracy hotels against demolitions, displacement, and gentrification in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. I can't do it in a few minutes, but those battles, I think, continue while I'm here as well. Um, there isn't a day, however, that in Vancouver I don't see what's happening there and what's happening here. I kind of have this torturous, irritating dual consciousness. I see what's happening in San Francisco. I see the thing played out here, too. And that was our final clip from the Vancouver Renters Union panel on the future of social housing. Again, the full um, a full event can be found as an audio recording um, at thecityfm.org. And uh, we're just about out of time today. And I want to thank you uh, for tuning in. Again, you can find uh, past uh, podcasts at thecityfm.org. Uh, find the city on Twitter at thecity_fm, um, and also on Facebook um, by searching the city. And uh, we're going to be back next week for another um, hour of critical urban discussions. And uh, we're going to go out with Balkan Beatbox, and the track is Money. Um, so have a listen, um, have a wonderful day, and uh, we'll be back next week. Money leads to more money. That's why right now, yes, that world.